I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. This episode of Vet Sessions is generously sponsored by OVC Pet Trust. OVC Pet Trust, founded in 1986 at the Ontario Veterinary College, is Canada's first charitable fund dedicated to improving and advancing companion animal health and well-being. OVC Pet Trust supports innovative discoveries, education, and healthcare that can improve the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of diseases of pets. Learn more about OVC Pet Trust at www.pettrust.ca or connect with them on Instagram at the handle at OVC Pet Trust. Hello everyone, thank you for joining us on Vet Sessions. I'm your host, Dr. Shannon Galland, and with me today is Dr. Sherry Rahab, who is a cardiologist here at the Ontario Veterinary College. Welcome, Sherry. Hi, Shannon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So I thought maybe we'd start by hearing a little bit about you, if you don't mind. Um, so my first question for you is, what do you love so much about cardiology? Ah, good question. Well, everybody knows that the heart is the most important organ of the body. Um, <laughs> all of us, my specialist friends, maybe maybe will disagree with that. But um, I, yeah, I just find the, um, obviously the heart is such a, a fascinating organ and, and the field of cardiology, at least the way we practice it in veterinary veterinary medicine, um, I guess allows us to dabble a little bit in, you know, we do diagnostic imaging with our echocardiograms that yeah. we, um, that we do. We, um, you know, obviously do internal medicine. We fall into the college of, of veterinary internal medicine, and then we get to do a little bit of surgery, um, you know, minimally invasive surgeries in particular. Um, so it's, uh, kind of a little bit of everything, um, that I love, but still focused on, uh, on the organ that I love. Amazing. I've always thought cardiology is a really cool specialty. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you like it so much. So then how did you get to where you are? Like, can you just kind of tell us a little bit about your career path to become a cardiologist in case any of our listeners are thinking of following in your footsteps? Sure. Um, so I was one of those kids who always wanted to be a veterinarian ever since I was really little. Yeah. Um, so that part wasn't a surprise when I decided to go to vet school. I did my undergraduate degree here at the University of Guelph. Um, went out to Prince Edward Island and did vet school um, at the Atlantic Veterinary College. And at that point, I had no idea which field of veterinary medicine I wanted to do. I was really interested in shelter medicine. I was interested in nutrition for a little while. Oh, yeah. So I, I dabbled uh, a little bit, um, and it was really in fourth year when I had my uh, cardiology rotation. We had a patient come in who needed a pacemaker placed, and I was absolutely hooked at that point in time. Um, the electrophysiology of that uh, case got me uh, got my piqued my interest. Um, the the fact that that dog could get a pacemaker uh, just like humans can, I just thought that was so cool. So. I uh, pursued a uh, first a rotating internship. I came back here to Guelph to do a rotating internship. Yeah. Um, got to meet a former OVC cardiologist, uh, Dr. Lynn O'Sullivan, yes. who you know, um, yeah. who uh, took me on as a resident. Um, actually, I did a year in private practice between my 
internship and residency, um, which I thought was a really good experience, um, you know, yeah. out in the real world, out in the trenches, as they say, <laughs> For um, sure. to see, to, you know, just get some experience there, but uh, knew I was going to, co- I wanted to come back and, and do cardiology residency. So I did that along with the doctor of veterinary science degree with Lynn here. Um, we were very lucky to have Sonia Fonfara join the team partway through my residency. And now I'm very lucky to call her a colleague because I stayed to work as faculty. Fantastic. Oh, well, we're very lucky to have you. So we're happy that you're here too. Amazing. Amazing. And that's so cool that you got to see an experience in fourth year that hooked you so much. So yeah, Uh, peacemakers are pretty amazing. So that's great. All right. So I thought we would jump into our topic, which is I hear a new heart murmur. Now what? So often I find in the exam rooms in primary care, we will hear a new heart murmur and I get lots of questions from the students about, okay, you know, they're happy to have identified the murmur, not happy that the patient has a murmur, but happy that they could hear it, of course. Um, but then sometimes the next step is, is, you know, something that they have questions about. So I thought maybe we'd start with a case. So let's say we have a case named Sushi. So Sushi is an eight-year-old male neutered mini poodle who presents to us for a wellness appointment. And his initial history is unremarkable with no concerns. Um, And as we perform his physical exam, we find a grade two out of six systolic part murmur on the left side. And this is a new finding for Sushi. So so I guess, first of all, do you have any tips or or things we should think about um, when we're doing our auscultation or listening for murmurs? Uh, yeah, so I think, I mean, some tips that we um, really try to remind uh, the students when they come on their cardiology rotation and um, is really do your best to be listening in a quiet room um, as much as possible. Yeah. You know, when you have the sibling dog barking in the corner or the dog's panting away and you can't really uh, get a good auscultation, of course, you know, you're, the, the likelihood of you missing something is, is going to be higher. So trying to get that quiet room, not being afraid to ask the owner or an assistant to maybe hold the dog's mouth closed for Mm -hmm. you. Um, You might have to do that intermittently if the dog really wants to pant. Um, So... Yeah, I think that's that's definitely going to be helpful. When it comes to cats, I know we're talking about a dog here, but um, you know, I, I think um, it can be daunting to try to listen for heart murmurs amongst purring. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one thing I, I would say is is sometimes you can just really focus focus beyond the purring and and still get a good listen to the heart. Um, if if you can't and the purring is is really in your way. Um, there are some things you might hear about moving the cat towards running water um, that probably will stop the purring, but probably will also freak them out and, and make it a little bit tricky to do the rest of your exam and maybe not make that such a, a positive experience for the cat. So I, I don't do um, that maneuver particularly. Sometimes I will put a little bit of alcohol on a cotton swab and just kind of put it on the table in front of the cat and, and maybe the cat will kind of sniff it themselves. And, and if they kind of have that bad smell in their, in their nose, they might stop purring for a minute, but I really don't, I try very hard not to stress cats out too, too much. So. I agree that the running water maneuver, I think, yeah, your chances of terrifying the cat are pretty high. Pretty high. The cat's just going to fly off, uh, fly off the handle and you're not going to get anything else done and they're going to have had, yeah, a a bad experience. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
Yeah, that um, makes sense. And then just in general, I guess, going back to the dogs, um, you know, doing your best to listen on both sides of the chest, um, mm-hmm. trying to pay attention to um, the, the apex of the heart, particularly on the left side, that left apex versus the base, remembering that the heart base is kind of up under the tricep muscle or under the armpit. You have to move your stethoscope quite cranial to get to the heart base, um, whereas the apex is pretty much where you feel the heartbeat the best on the left side. Um, and, uh, yeah, spending a, a few moments at each location to really try to figure out where you think the murmur's the loudest. Okay, for sure. Thank you. And then, okay, so back to sushi with our uh, two out of six murmur. What questions would you want us to ask the owner? Like anything in particular? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's, um, I guess, the, the first thing that I'll sort of jump to a little bit is in, you know, an eight-year-old small breed dog. You know, I think all of us probably listening are are thinking this is probably degenerative mitral valve disease. Um, So I think that is probably already going to be a a differential on our radar when we're um, thinking about this dog. So, you know, the good news is that when the murmur is quite quiet, a grade one or grade two, most of the time, that amount of mitral regurgitation is not going to be enough to cause the dog many clinical signs. Um, But I think it's still important to be asking the questions. Is there any coughing? Is there any respiratory difficulty? Does the dog uh, really restless at night? Um, and, uh, you know, as as we learn, you know, in our AVM is, is to not necessarily ask those leading questions, but to try to ask more open-ended questions about the dog's respiration primarily. Um, exercise tolerance would be another thing. Okay, for sure. So, um, okay, so now we have a new grade two left-sided murmur on a small breed dog who is asymptomatic. Um, so... Is there anything we should consider doing next? Yeah, so, um, you know, again, going back to that really top differential in our mind of this is very likely going to be degenerative mitral valve disease, particularly when we're dealing with an asymptomatic um, dog. For sure. When the murmur is that quiet, a grade one or, or grade two, typically I am, we are recommending to simply monitor that over time. The reason being that with such a low-grade murmur, the amount of mitral regurgitation that that patient is experiencing is very unlikely to be enough to cause any clinical consequences. And, okay. and in particular, we're talking about um, cardiomegaly, which can then lead to um, clinical signs of coughing or obviously worst case scenario, a congestive heart failure. Um, sure. Most So most of the time, asymptomatic, we simply monitor. And with that's, you know, cardiac auscultation every six months or so, an eight-year-old dog, it's, it's very reasonable for them to be seeing a veterinarian approximately every six months anyways. Um, when and if that murmur becomes louder, and generally by the time it's around a grade three out of six or so, and uh, you know, there's different ways to grade murmurs. The way uh, we like uh, to grade them in our service is by the time the murmur is as loud as the heart sounds, the lub dub, then we would consider it a, a grade three. So by the time the murmur is that loud, we know that there is a possibility that there's enough mitral regurgitation um, that the heart is starting to become enlarged. So usually the first step that we would recommend is a chest x-ray. 
Okay. Um, the chest X-ray gives us a chance to see sort of the outline of the heart. We can ca- uh, calculate a vertebral heart sum to get a sort of number on how big is this heart. We can evaluate does the left atrium look big, um, and if the heart is small, and generally it's if the vertebral heart sum is less than ten point five, we would consider it normal, and we would say let's just keep monitoring because we don't believe there will be any. Uh, benefit to you necessarily seeing a cardiologist or starting cardiac medications at this point in time. Okay, that's that's really great information for sure. Okay, mm-hmm. so we should listen to the murmur, decide whether it's a grade one or two, which we're going to recommend monitoring for, or if it's a grade three or higher, when we're going to go with that chest rod. Okay, exactly. that's fantastic. Okay, yeah. that sounds really good. Um, what about you? What about when we should start considering medication um, for this dog? Yeah, perfect. So it sort of uh, starts to tie into that that last question about yeah. when do we start looking for cardiomegaly. So what we know is that in dogs with preclinical, that is pre heart failure, degenerative mitral valve disease, um, when they have cardiomegaly secondary to their mitral valve disease, um, they may benefit from a medication called pemobendin or mm-hmm. vatmedin. And the study that that's based on was a, it's a, it's a 2006 uh, study called the EPIC study. As students who come through cardiology, we're always talking about the EPIC study. Um, not cardiologists make up the coolest names for their studies. They do. Uh, <laughs> for sure. and, and what that study showed is that in dogs with degenerative valve disease who have a murmur of at least a grade three out of six or higher um, and had cardiomegaly both on radiographs and on echocardiogram uh, benefited from being started on pemobendin. And the benefit was that it, it that group of dogs um, went longer in the preclinical stage, i.e. it took them longer to develop congestive heart failure compared to placebo. So um, that's generally why the study that we go um, based on to decide, okay, well, first we want to know, is your murmur grade three or higher? If you have cardiomegaly on a, on a chest x-ray, the next step would be very, it would be very reasonable to get an echocardiogram to see if you tick all of the boxes for a dog who would benefit from pemobendin. Okay. So generally, that's sort of the gold standard for deciding when to start pemobendin. Okay. And so if we have that grade three murmur and we take a chest radiograph and we believe there's cardiomegaly, we should then consider recommending a cardio referral? Yeah, that, yeah. that certainly would be, you know, the, um, you know, again, gold standard um, of, of care at this point in time. Um, there are some investigators trying to, you know, see can we make these decisions based on a radiograph alone? Mm-hmm. Um, because we certainly recognize that not every client is going to be able to send um, their dog, is going to be able to go to a cardiologist, and not every owner will be able to afford an echocardiogram, or it might not be uh, physically feasible, depending on where you live. Um, so some investigators are trying to figure out, can we use just the heart size on a radiograph to tell us, yeah, this dog is probably going to meet all the criteria on echocardiogram without that echocardiographic evidence. And it seems that by the time the vertebral heart sum is around 11.5 or so uh, for most breeds of dogs, probably suggests the heart is big enough that it's, you know, truly big and uh, and those dogs probably would benefit from pemobendin. Um, Just, I think it all comes down to a conversation with the owner about, um, 
this is the evidence that we have. This is the evidence we're lacking. Uh, pimobendin is not a cheap drug, as no, uh, as those of us who prescribe it know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's not the kind of thing that I I would give out willy nilly if if we don't have evidence to to support its use. Um, on the other hand, you know, I, I think with good client communication and, and good owner consent, um, there are certainly instances where I I would prescribe it without an echo. Okay, that's good because I did that yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I did. So, um, yeah, that's so, life. Yeah, it is. It is. So, in so gold standard is going to be to refer for that for that echo um, when you meet the other criteria. But if that's not possible, then you're okay with us going with a yeah. high vertebral heart score and yeah. radiographic evidence of enlargement. Yeah, high vertebral heart score, and and I should also mention, you know, potentially an enlarging cardiac silhouette over time, um, okay. because we know there are going to be some dogs who maybe radiograph them one year and they have a vertebral heart sum of ten point five, and you're kind of okay. Well, we're going to sit on this for now but a year later it's 11 or 11.5 you know I think that's probably enough evidence to suggest that heart is getting bigger and um, and may benefit from pimobendin again recognize that I don't have the study to go to to tell me that uh, that that that's uh, evidence-based that's more um, rational I suppose yeah. or real life based real life makes sense yeah yeah that's good <laughs> well and the other thing is that that um, are we placing the patient at risk starting pimobendin a little bit earlier? Um, there's the risk of expense to the owner, of course. Well, not the risk, the fact of expense to the owner, of course. Um, do you feel we're placing the patients at risk if we do start it a little bit earlier than we would need to? That's that's a really good question. And, and uh, yeah, that's a question that our, I think our students um, wonder about uh, a lot of the time. The good news is, at least as far as we know, pimobendin does seem to be fairly safe uh, mm-hmm. as a drug. Um, we don't have any evidence that starting it, you know, too early is necessarily detrimental to um, to the patient, so that that is good news for sure. Um, but you know, on the other hand, we come back to that cost, and if I think of a, a year's worth of pimobendin, um, probably is going to cover the cost of an echocardiogram, or or then and maybe then some. So for sure, um, just again coming down to that owner um, informed consent and uh, and owner's understanding where the evidence is. For sure. So yeah. a combination of evidence and individualized care. Exactly. Okay. That sounds really good. Thank you for clarifying all that. Yes. Um, and then what about, uh, sometimes we talk to the owners about monitoring sleeping respiratory rate. How do you feel about that? Like at what time, at what point do you start? Yeah, I, um, I love sleeping respiratory rate monitoring at home. I think it is um, sometimes under, an underused uh, tool, especially because it is uh, easy, it's in, it's cheap, it doesn't cost anything. Um, and it also really encourages the owner to get involved in, in their pet's care. So for a multitude of reasons, I think it's fantastic. Um, there's not necessarily a, a point that it's that is too soon to start doing that necessarily. Uh, maybe you hear that grade two or grade three murmur and the heart's not big yet, but you want to get the owner used to um, doing that exercise at home. Um, I think it's very reasonable to to have them just start practicing, um, ideally when the pet is sleeping or at least resting very comfortably and relaxed. Um, you know, I always, I, I try to warn owners, you know, when they're doing their little puppy dreams, that's not a good time to do it. Um, <laughs> Me too, yeah. Or uh, those, those unusual times during sleep, but um, it, evidence has actually shown that uh, that an increase in sleeping respiratory rates at home um, is the earliest indicator of the onset of pulmonary edema. So I think it is a really important tool for, for owners to do at home. Um, certainly, if I have a patient that uh, we have diagnosed cardiomegaly on and, and have started 
Pimo Bendin very likely. Um, I, I would for sure have that owner start to monitor those respiratory rates because we know that every pet is going to have their own normal you know some dogs are are out there at 16 breaths per minute and that's normal for them others are 25 but you just kind of want to know what's normal for this pet so that if it increases over time they'll be able to recognize it for sure and so for sleeping respiratory rate all we're doing is making sure the dog is in a very deep sleep no chasing bunnies or anything like that Um, and then we have the owners either count the number of breaths per minute or count the number of breaths per 15 seconds and multiply by four so do you have a a particular number at which you get concerned or is it more like you know if a dog's at 16 it goes up to uh, what would you say about numbers? Yeah, I mean, it. I, I we try hard not to have our owners fixate on one particular number yes. because certainly it can cause the um, some owners to get very anxious and worried. Um, you know, I think it it is more having uh, getting a sense of what's normal for your pet and and what the normal range is for your pet. You know, sure. maybe you're always in that sixteen to twenty range, but then if you're suddenly always in the 25 to 30 range I you know I might get concerned about that Um, if you're always 16 to 20 and you take one count of 25 but then it goes back down to normal two hours later uh, I'm certainly not going to get more very concerned about that it's it's more about if it's consistently higher for sure. I do yeah. tell people not to panic and go to emergency over one high yes, number. Yeah. So, yeah. As a sort of very general rule, we often think of that sort of 30 breaths per minute as, as being upper, upwards of normal for, for most dogs and cats. Uh, but again, you know, every patient's going to be different. If they have underlying lung pathology, maybe they're going to have a bit of a higher number and that's normal for them. Um, so just to um, not try to fixate too much on one number. Okay. All right. That's really helpful. Okay. So is there anything else you can suggest to get owners to monitor the sleeping respiratory rate more easily? Yeah. So, I mean, there are definitely lots of, uh, you know, tips and tricks, owner handouts that you can find online on, on VIN, for example. Um, there are videos that owners can watch on YouTube um, to if they want to see how to do it themselves. Um, we tend to uh, send owners home with some homework. So we have just a very basic chart um, that we'll send home owners home with, um, with a little description of how to do the sleeping respirate monitoring and just some boxes to fill out of the date time and, and what was the sleeping respiratory rate. Um, something about that seems to make owners a little more accountable for, um, yeah. you know, bring this chart back to your next visit um, because we're going to ask you about it. Um, and then finally, there is uh, there are some uh, phone app apps that you can put on your phone that clients can put on their phone to help keep track of them too. Um, the one that I've seen used most often is uh, called Cardalis. Um, it's uh, one of the drug companies puts it out, but uh, it's pretty easy to use. They just kind of tap their phone uh, every time their pet takes a breath. It will calculate the breath rate for them and actually chart it in a uh, like a line graph for them over time. So it's uh, it's pretty pretty neat. Wow, that's fantastic. I'm going to start using that for sure and recommending it. Yeah, I didn't know there was an app for that, but of course I should There's have known that. for everything. I know, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. Okay, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It is great to have you go over murmurs uh, in a little bit more detail. And I think that this will really help the students when they uh, hear a new murmur for the first time. So thank fantastic. you very much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks again, Shannon. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today and spending time with us. Um, So if you have any suggestions for a future podcast or you have a clinical question that you would like answered, then definitely email us um, at vetsessions at hotmail.com. And also please follow us on Instagram at vetsessions. Take care. See you next time.